Habits, we all have them, often unconsciously so. Up to 40% of the way we live life on a daily basis is done habitually, and most of it unconsciously, we're just quite unaware, which is often handy because it leaves some space in your brain for some other things to do. The little series that we're in right now, In Habit, is not really about trying to make everybody feel guilty for their bad habits, that's not the case, but it is an opportunity to reflect, perhaps to learn to some new habits, maybe even to replace some habits, to develop things that might change our lives. It's about what we were thinking about last weekend, the words of Proverbs chapter 4, guard your heart because it's the wellspring of life. And that's what we're trying to think about. It's really about asking and answering a simple question. How do I want to live so I can be who I want to be? How can I live? How do I want to live so I can be who I want to be? For the curious minds that wondered how I got on with all of Lindsay's suggestions about drinking more water, I have been trying really hard to drink more water. I also go to the bathroom at an inordinate rate because of all the water I'm drinking. She says it will improve. I'm, we'll see. Anyway, you didn't really need to know that, I suppose. Today we're going to look at the first daily habit that I actually want us to participate in. And you heard me correctly, I want us, meaning every single one of us, to actually participate in this. Because when we do this together as a church family, I think we can encourage one another. We can help one another, listen to one another, maybe even keep each other accountable. We can have a common language of words that we can share, a common experience of something that we try to do together. In a sense, learning how to do life together. Here we are then, daily habit number one. We called it On Your Knees. I want to read from Paul's letter to his friends, the Ephesians, a little town in the Mediterranean. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. It's a prayer. Here's what he writes. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him, who by his, the power at work within us, is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we could ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's a beautiful prayer, and it really struck me that it's very different to most of my prayers. Most of my prayers are like, Lord, my wrist is sore and my dad's sick and my car won't start. This seems very different. But the first thing that actually stood out to me was posture. Look again at verse 14 if you happen to have a Bible open or on a screen. In verse 14, Paul writes and he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. I'm guessing some of you may remember that to be a fairly common practice years and years ago in church to kneel down when we pray. When I was a kid, people used to do that all the time. If there was a prayer meeting at church, people would be on their knees. No sitting in comfy chairs. (laughs) And at home as a child, kneeling down beside my bed to pray. I'm not really sure why that stopped or how. 
The normal posture for prayer among Jewish people at the time the Bible was written in the New Testament was really to stand up. That's what people did. Paul, who wrote this, he would have been used to standing when he prayed. Jesus told a great story, one of his parables, about a Pharisee and a tax collector. One was, knew his life was a mess. The other one thought he was amazing. But in neither case, both of them are standing in the temple courts. They both stood to pray. It was kind of what people did. Kneeling was a little bit unusual. But kneeling indicates humility. It's praying with your body as much as it is with your word. Kneeling indicates desperation. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is on his knees, falling in his face before his father, praying for himself, praying for God's will. And that's exactly what Paul is up to right here, right now. He bowed his knees. He threw himself down before God. Kneeling indicates adoration, reflecting on who God is and what God has done in our lives and taking the time to realize perhaps what we sang this morning, the weight of his glory. It pushes us to our knees as we adore him. Kneeling can indicate confidence because Jesus is praying for us while we're praying. Last year, as we worked our way through the book of Hebrews, we saw that, chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, talking about Jesus, it says, he is able for all time to save those who approach God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus prays for us. We can be confident. And kneeling indicates hope, the hope that one day, Everyone will bow their knee before Jesus. Paul wrote to another group of his friends and he said this, Therefore God exalted him, Jesus, even more highly and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name given to Jesus, every knee should bow and bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And then as Paul describes this posture of kneeling, he plays with some words, which I think is kind of cute. The word between father and family, at least in English, they both begin with the same letter in verses 14 and 15. In the language Paul was writing in, in Greek, the words are pater or pater and patria. They kind of play together. Names mattered in his day. And the name of God's family obviously mattered to Paul what he was saying. And names matter to many of us too. I get that. Our kids have real meaning for our family. John Douglas, our oldest, is named for his grandfather and to his great-grandfather. Callum Andrew is named for a grandfather. And for Colm Cayley, you may know him as St. Columba, the man who brought the story of Jesus to Scotland, where my family's from, and told the whole nation the wonder of who Christ is. Our daughter, Ailey Victoria, is named for her grandmother and for her aunt. Paul is reminding us who we are, whose family we are part of, part of God's family. We belong to him. He is our father. We are his kids, loved and chosen. We don't come to a father terrified of him. We come to his presence because he loves us. And with that in mind, Paul introduces three big prayer requests, which can be difficult to see as you read your Bible, partly because the vast majority of this prayer from verses 14 through 19 is one gigantic long sentence that Paul was impressed by. He always wrote huge sentences that are really hard to understand and hard enough to translate. It's not always easy to figure out, but he does give some word clues in there how he breaks down his prayer requests. Here's the first one. It is a prayer for strength. Verse 16, verse 17. He says, I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his Holy Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you're being rooted and grounded in love. God 
is a God who promises to bring strength to us, no matter what we're facing. And the word strengthen that's in here can mean fortify or brace or invigorate. An old Bible translator from many years ago, a man, J.B. Phillips, he once translated this verse like this, that they may know the strength of the Spirit's reinforcement. The reality is that the Holy Spirit wants to reinforce you, no matter what's happened, no matter how hurt or broken you feel, no matter what you possibly have done in life, regardless of all that, the Holy Spirit wants to reinforce and strengthen you, invigorate you. My physio's got me wearing this brace because of, many of you would know I have a neuro problem that leads to some uncontrolled tremors and movements at times. It's just a sprain really in my wrist, but it's sore. But the brace reinforces it. It stops some of the movement, stops some of the pain. And that's exactly what's going on here. It reinforces, and just as a brace can reinforce my wrist, the Spirit can reinforce our lives. But to be clear, Paul's not really talking about physical strength here, as though you all ought to get one of these and put it on. That's not it. He's not even talking about strength of character. When he uses that phrase, inner being, he's not even talking about some sort of invisible part of you that you can try and find in there, your soul or something like that. He's using the sense of inner being to remind us and to point out that inwardly, if you like, we are all in Christ. As God's children, we are in Christ. It's his favorite phrase to discuss what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Inner being, we're in Christ. And he's using the you plural that we talk about often. Not just you personally, but yous, all of us together. You are the body of Christ together. And so he prays that you all together would be strong because together in Christ as God's people, in our inner being together, God's family, his Holy Spirit will strengthen us. He gives us strength to overcome temptation, strength to serve God and serve others the way we ought to, strength to time, at times to persevere courageously when it seems too hard, strength to take the good news of Jesus here, there, and everywhere. <clears throat> Do you know what it means to be in Christ like that? Have you ever surrendered your life to Jesus and said yes to him completely? It is an act of faith. It's a choice to trust. It's a decision, in a sense, to pledge your allegiance to Jesus and follow him. Today would be a great day to do that. Because when we say yes to Jesus, not only are we in Christ, but as we can read in verse 17, Christ dwells in us. He makes his habitation in us. Now, I got to confess to getting somewhat lost in my studying and thinking about this because I was looking at that word lives, habitation, dwells, and I, I kind of got the habitation part, then you got the habs, and then I'm wondering, does Jesus actually support Montreal? And it really wasn't helpful, so I skipped fa- wildly past this because I just get lost. But I, he starts using then all these metaphors in here, botanical, ar- architectural metaphors, rooted and grounded. He's praying that the power of the Holy Spirit working in us as we place our faith and trust in Jesus, that as God's church, we will be strengthened. We'll discover we are the family of God, the family who takes his name. We discover that Christ dwells in us. And when he does, we've got a well-landscaped yard, rooted and a firmly anchored house that is grounded If Jesus is living within us and making his holy habitation with us, then every day we get the wonderful opportunity to pray to him, to strip away the things in life that are unworthy, to take the things away from us that are not helpful for us at all. 
to take away the parts that are impure, impure or unloving or unkind. If Jesus is living within us, he's going to start making us together look like him who loves and is kind. The love that roots and grounds us is not just love for each other because we kind of like being in each other's company. It is the very love of God in our hearts. It is a divine love that anchors us. It's kind of like Jesus' little story about the guy who built his house in the sand and another one built his house in the rock. And the guy who builds his house in the rock, doing what Jesus says, his life is anchored. And that's Paul's desire for his friends, for this church in Ephesus, that they would be anchored. What are you building your life on today? God's purpose is to bring us into his family. And Jesus making his home in us. The Holy Spirit strengthening us where we grow in love. Would you like that? And then Paul prays for love. In verses 18 and 19. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I don't know about you but I know that I need that in my life. I know that I need to know how much God loves me. I know that I need his love to hold me when I'm in trouble. I know that I need his love to change me because I know myself all too well. I know my flaws. I know a lot of my weaknesses. Some I'm probably unaware of. But I know that despite trying really hard, I'm not very good at changing myself. But God is an expert at that. That's why I know I need his love to change me. And I know how easy it is to feel sorry for myself at times. Why has all this happened to me? Why is everything always so difficult? Does anybody care? Do you care, God? I need to know and be reminded how much God loves me. That I'm never alone. That in going to the hard places, Jesus says he goes with me. I need to know that. I need to know that he gets it. And he's always there. Do you know God loves you? Have you experienced his love? Jesus came to give his life for you. To surrender life itself that you may have life. Life abundantly he called it. Life to the very full. Life eternal. Giving us a new start in life where the past is forgiven and the opportunities begin to open up that we do life with Jesus that he can lead us and guide us through. He came to set us free from our past. He came to be with us in our present. He came to open up an unbelievable future that we can hardly begin to imagine. He came to take our guilt and our sin and our shame. He came to bring forgiveness and a brand new start to place us in a right relationship with God and fill our lives with hope and purpose because he loves you. Have you experienced that love? (laughs) That's the one thing I really wish you could do today. That'll be my prayer for you today. That you would experience the profound depths of God's love in your heart today. And today could be your moment to do that. Paul uses some words to try and measure what he thinks is going on here. Breadth and length and height and depth. It's as though he's saying, you know, if you look at the universe and the limitless sky above us, or you go in some underwater TV show and peer into the depths of the ocean, if you can span the whole globe, God's love is wider and higher and longer and deeper than any of that. It's immeasurable. It's beyond comprehension. It surpasses knowledge. And yet we can experience it. 
Because Jesus' love is broad enough in his language to encompass both Jews and Gentiles, non-Jewish people, all of humanity. Maybe in our language, we could say that Jesus' love is broad enough to encompass all of humanity, gay or straight, cis or trans, black or white, Muslim and Hindu, young or old. Make your own pairs. It makes no difference. It is broad enough to encompass you and me too. It's long enough to last from now to all eternity. It's deep enough to reach into the places where sometimes we find ourselves. How on earth did I ever end up in this mess? But his love reaches down to get us no matter where we are. And it's high enough to exalt us and lift us to the very presence of God in heaven. God is for you. He loves you. And this love of Jesus poured out in his life, his death, the vindication of his resurrection, his exaltation and ascension to sit in the very throne room of heaven is God's guarantee of his love for you. He wants you to know that and live that and experience that today. Paul also prays for God's fullness in verse 19. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I mean, how cool is that? To actually be filled with all the fullness of God. His words capture the idea of maturity and growth, that something's changing. That together in Christ, as his church, as God's family, we are growing together and experiencing together God's fullness in our lives. It's as though God's fullness is somehow burrowing its way in to our family as a church and into our lives personally. God is coming deeper and deeper into our lives as we experience his presence and his power. This prayer, when Paul starts talking about fullness, is a prayer for abundance, not just getting by. It's a prayer for thriving, not just surviving. It's a prayer for wholeness rather than simply subsistence or brokenness. And so often we live with this kind of meager theology of scarcity. We settle for something so far less that God wants for us. Jesus came to bring the very fullness of God to us because in him the fullness of God lived, dwelt bodily. And this can be your reality today as we say yes to Jesus and pray for God's fullness in our lives. Can you imagine it? the very fullness of God in you, that that's what God wants for you, that he wants to completely saturate your life with his presence, that he wants to saturate us with his Holy Spirit who brings love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control to our lives, that he wants to saturate us with his forgiveness and his mercy, that he wants to saturate us with his truth that provides protection and direction for what happens next, that he wants to saturate us with his strength to enable us that we can worship him by serving other people. He wants to saturate us with his grace that we may know the free freedom and joy of being God's kids and living in his presence. He wants to saturate us with himself that others would see and wonder what's going on and why and what about me and can I too? God wants to strengthen you. He wants you to know and experience his love and to fill your life. But many of us, we live with a void an unfillable void. And I think that's where many of our bad habits come from. The void. We try to fill it. All sorts of things. 
so very often with diminishing returns. Doesn't really work. It's an unquestionable thirst. It's an uncontrollable appetite, an unfillable void. But God's promise is that he can satisfy us and he can fill us. And it's because of, because of this that Paul begins to pray and invite us to pray with imagination, prayerful imagination, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than we can ask or imagine. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The promise of God jumps right out that we could pray with imagination. I mean, do you see the words he's got now to him who by the power at work in us is able, that God is able? He's really able to do what? To do what needs to be done in his world, in your life. There's no problem is going to stop him or obstacles going to thwart him. There's no circumstances going to worry him. There's no outcome could be confusing to him. And yet I know, I know the challenge of the circumstances that many of us live in. The prayers that seem to go on unanswered. The desperation that we feel and wonder, does God care? The ache in our heart because nothing really changes. It's enough at times to make us doubt God's promise. Oh, I know. But then I remember Paul writing this. He's in prison. He's in chains. There's nobody taking care of him or looking after him. He's awaiting a death sentence and execution. And did you notice it? As he prays, he doesn't pray that out of his glorious riches he'll get me out of this jail cell. It was the conviction that God is able that gives Paul the same confidence in God, whether he's in a jailhouse or a penthouse, it makes no difference. And Paul's words, as he, as he prays this in the desperation of his own life, they're, they're like a staircase or a ladder that you begin to climb, I think, when you, you look through it. He's telling us God is able to accomplish or to work. He's not a bystander in the cosmos. He's involved, deeply involved in his creation. He's not gone on vacation. And yet he's so much more than that. He tells us that God is able to do what we ask. <clears throat> That's why we pray. Jesus loves to answer prayer. Jesus' little brother James said to one time, the reason you don't have so often is because you simply don't ask. What do you need to ask God about today? And our God is able to do what we ask, but there's more to it than all of that. Not just what we ask. He says that he's able to do the stuff we imagine. The things that we wouldn't even try bothering God about, but he's able to do the stuff we imagine. Could you dare to imagine what God might do if we asked? He's able, and yet there's more to it than that. He's not able to do just some of what we ask or imagine. He says he's able to do all that we ask or imagine. Everything, no exceptions. The stuff that you can imagine that aligns with God's purposes, God's got it. He can do that. He's able, and yet there's still more. It's not just everything that we can ask or imagine. He says he's able to do more than we could ask or imagine. And some of us dare to ask God for a lot of big things. And some of us are like, I don't know, like you're busy in Africa or something. Don't worry about me, I'll be fine. 
But others, we've got this huge long list. But regardless of how long the list is, God is able to do far more. He's able. And yet it's still a little bit more than that because it's not just a teeny bit more. He says he's able to do far more, immeasurably more, exceedingly abundantly more. At this point, he's running out of words. He doesn't know what to say. So he makes up. He's going all hyper. And hyper is actually a Greek word. And that's what Paul says here. God can do hyper more than you can imagine. I don't know how else to say it. If it's not logically impossible, it's consistent with God's character. God is able. And all because his power is at work within us. Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith. Christ inhabiting this community of faith. Christ dwelling with his people, making his home with us, making us into his temple. The same power that raised our Lord Jesus from the dead and exalted him to the Father's right hand is here working in us. Paul writes in Ephesians, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. The power comes from him. The glory goes to him in the church and in Christ Jesus, in the body and in the head, Christ who's Lord of all, in the bride as we're so often called and in the bridegroom, Jesus himself, forever and ever. Amen. Do you ever get the sense that we need to dream some bigger dreams? Paul's big dream wasn't simply getting out of prison, though I'm sure he would have liked it. His dream was for a new humanity where things are made right, where there's no more conflict, no more divide, but we are become all God's people, the family of God, no distinctions, reconciled to one another. It's not just dreaming, it's praying. Not just big dreams, big prayers, bold, audacious prayers. Not simply for my well-being, but for God to do what God needs to do in his world to make everything right again. I wish I could pray like that. Do you ever pray that way? A lot of my prayers look more like the grocery list of things I need to get through. All the things I need, all the stuff I need God to do for me. And let me tell you, there's nothing wrong with praying about those things. God invites us to bring all our cares and concerns to him. There's nothing wrong with that. I pray about stuff. I pray for my kids, my grandchildren. I pray for my parents. It's okay to do that thing. But I'm learning as I read Paul, I could do well by imitating him and ask God to make my life more like Jesus. I'm learning that I need to take more time to pray. I'm learning that I think I need to learn how to pray some of these prayers in the Bible. And in fact, this year for Lent, the six weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to spend our time working through the prayers of Jesus in the New Testament to learn how to pray the way Jesus did. So here's the habit that I'm inviting you to join with me in. A habit to build into your life. A habit of prayer that is non-transactional. It's not pop in a prayer out comes a request. Years ago here at FEC, some of you would have remembered me doing something really stupid. I thought I'd make a good fun doing this and get the camera outside with me in Main Street at the vending machine and I'd pop in some money, out would come the can, I'd pop it open and make the point, that's not what prayer is. Except the cans were too high up in the vending machine that day and it fell a long way with a bang and the minute I popped it open, it exploded. I was covered in coke, the carpet was covered in coke. 
Nobody was very happy, especially me, nor the facility people who had to clean up all my mess. And then I had to preach covered soaking wet in coke for the morning. I was just... <laughs> but I'm wanting to invite us to something more than that. Not pop in a prayer, but a prayer that is focused and attentive to who God is and what he's up to. Last weekend, Lindsay was teaching us about stacking habits, placing a habit on top of another one to build the routine and rhythm into your schedule. And today, I want you to think about something that's called a keystone habit. It's a habit that holds other things together, just like a keystone and an arch holds the arch, the bridge up. It's a habit that holds so many things together. Or you could think of it like a chain of dominoes. In that case, it's the first one to fall and the pattern begins to emerge as all the dominoes topple over. When we change this habit... Lots of other things change too. What is it? I call it kneeling prayer. It's learning to be intentional and purposeful and scriptural as we kneel down to pray. It's a habit of embrace, something we're choosing to do. It's not giving something up. It's just choosing to do something to embrace, making space for God in my life and giving him my attention. Why kneeling? Because we don't usually. Because the floor is hard. Because the change in posture is probably uncomfortable and it may actually just shake your body and your mind into action. Because I force myself to pay attention to God and not live with it. I'm sort of praying when I'm driving and praying when I'm eating and praying when I'm watching TV. There's nothing else I'm doing when I'm down on my knees in the floor. I'm only praying. There's nothing wrong with praying as you drive and praying as you eat and praying and all sorts of things. But for this moment, I want us to focus singularly upon God. Why kneeling? Well, because Paul did. Even more, because Jesus did. Now, I'm aware there are lots of people with mobility issues. I'm one of them. It's okay. It's not the spiritual Olympics here. It's not a guilt trip. You do what you can do. If a different posture is easier or better for you, that's fine. It's an invitation to attentiveness, setting things apart so I can focus on God alone. It's a habit of kneeling prayer that I'd love to invite you to practice with me this week, three times a day, three times a day in the morning, maybe when you wake up, Or maybe after you've got dressed, or maybe after your third or fourth cup of coffee when you're actually able to communicate well. But it is an invitation, if you like, to frame your day in God's presence. To say today, Lord, as it starts, and I'm kind of awake, I want you to frame and hem in my day for me. Then sometime around lunch, whenever that might be, on your knees at work or at school, that might be awkward, maybe you can, or at home. Maybe you can. Maybe it's close to impossible to find a moment to do that. I get that. But you also won't know till you try. And why? Because I want to take the invitation to frame my work and my meetings and all those pages that come across my desk and emails I need to read. I want to frame all of those and hem them in with God's presence. The third time is bedtime. Reviewing the day, looking forward to getting some rest. Facing the challenges that are probably still going to be there tomorrow when you get up again. It's an invitation to frame all of my life, the things that I can't change, with God's love and presence. And say, I need you to carry me. Kneeling prayer, three times a day. There's the keystone habit. 
Some of us are early birds, so I'll do the morning one, that's easy. And some are night owls, I'll do all the praying at bedtime. And some of us are neither. Some of us have private space to pray in at home or possibly at work or school. And some of us don't ever get a moment alone. Some of us have free time at different times of the day and peace and quiet, there's no other voices. And some of us are just crying kids and people at work talking all the time. It's difficult, I get that. We're not trying to outdo each other here. It's simply a deliberate attempt to focus clearly upon God and listen and pray. So don't go feeling guilty about what you can or cannot do. Don't worry about what somebody else is doing. Instead, choose to celebrate the freedom that you have to do what you can do and when you can do. We've put together a little daily prayer guide to help you. If you text the number on the screen, text the word prayer, you should be able to get it right away. If you're watching online right now, the host will put the link there for you so that you can do that. And we do have a few, and I'll say a few, paper copies of the same thing for anybody that really doesn't have online access. It's just a little trifold. It breaks up into morning, afternoon, and evening prayer. It's easy to get. Almost all of it are just scripture passages that have been worded as prayers. It's not complicated in there. Our staff's been using this for years and years. Whenever we pray in the morning, we pray the morning part together. And right now we have the chance to do something all together to help each other and encourage each other and support one another. I'm inviting you in a sense to commit to something that you may not want to do. That you may not find easy to do. In the hope that in your heart a new developed habit will turn into a new desire to spend time with Jesus. A new longing to follow him. A new longing to hear his voice. And you longing to pray for more than I've ever been able to think or imagine before. And so I want to invite you right now this morning to pray Paul's prayer with me. The words are going to be on the screen. And I want to invite you to pray it out loud with me right now. Would you do that? Then let's pray these words together. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him, who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.